From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. At its worst, long COVID can lead to complete debilitation. It can cause fatigue and an inability to complete basic tasks. Well, the rising number of young Australians are being treated for long COVID, sick for months after they've recovered from the initial infection. But understanding the cause and the cure for the illness has been a challenge for scientists. People coming in and asking, do I have long COVID, is starting to become increasingly common consult. And I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg of that condition. This challenge becomes more urgent as case numbers rise. More than 7 million Australians have caught COVID. The latest research suggests at least one in 10 will develop long COVID. Today, contributor to the Saturday paper, Bianca O'Grady, on the people living with long COVID. It's Thursday, July 14. Bianca, you've been looking into long COVID and the term long COVID, we've heard about it for a while, but it has always been a bit loose, a bit undefined. So I think a, a good place for us to start would to be to define what it is that we're talking about when we talk about long COVID. What are the symptoms that people tend to experience? Well, I guess the first thing is the duration of symptoms. So um, according to the World Health Organization, they set it as eight weeks, um, the persistence of symptoms to around eight weeks. But, um, for example, some clinicians who are working in the long COVID space say 12 weeks, so around three months. There are characteristic features of long COVID. Fatigue is really the number one thing. And it's not just fatigue as in you're feeling tired. It's fatigue like you literally can't get up to go to the toilet or you you might walk for 10 minutes and then need to sit down. And this applies to, you know, people who might previously have been, you know, really fit and healthy. So fatigue is a key one. Uh, another feature seems to be breathlessness, but it's a kind of weird breathlessness where it's, you know, when we look at all the studies, it doesn't necessarily show that you are actually objectively out of breath. You can walk up a flight of stairs and still have a conversation at the top, but you feel like you're not getting enough oxygen in your lungs. That's another characteristic. And then the third one, which we hear a lot about with COVID is this idea of brain fog, which is just not being able to focus, not being able to actually do relatively simple tasks. I mean, you know, I had that for probably about a month after I had COVID and, I, you know, I felt like I just felt dumb. I felt like things I would normally do really quickly took me two or three times longer to do stuff that for me is my day in, day out kind of work. But that persists and it can be really taxing to the point where people struggle to even compose a sentence or a text message or you know, walk and talk to a friend at the same time. Mm. And Bianca, what are the, the best estimates that we have of how many Australians have long COVID? Well, this is another tricky one, but generally speaking, the figures that are kind of being tossed around is around 5 to 10% of people who get COVID will have persistent symptoms that last, let's say, more than a month, maybe two to three months but there are so many studies and they're all kind of different. They're all looking at different populations and different symptoms, different duration of time. But as a general rule, if we've had at least 8 million infections, COVID infections in Australia, even the lower end of that scale, say 5%, you're looking at around 400,000 people mm. meeting some kind of clinical criteria for persistent COVID. 
And you've spoken to, to one of those people, someone who, who has long COVID and you call him James, although I believe that's not actually his real name. Can you tell me about his experience with the illness? So, yeah, James's experience is, is very severe. I'm boggy, very tense. Um, what, one of the issues that I've got is that my body can't sort of switch out of fight and flight mode. And quite shocking in some ways, you know, he uh, was previously a very active, a very cerebral. His job was very intense in the, in the legal world. He's been completely flattened. I mean, that's that's probably a, a massive understatement. He will have days where he can't can't get off the sofa. Not won't can't get off the sofa. Even going to the bathroom is absolutely exhausting. Can't send a two sentence text message. Sometimes can't actually articulate my thoughts orally. And if he has a good day, he might be able to work maybe four hours, um, maybe even go for a short walk. Um, and sort of in between that, he hasn't read a novel since he got sick. Like, he just cannot focus for that amount of time. For most of the last seven months, um, I haven't been able to read anything longer than, you know, a 600-word news article. What's most frustrating is if he has a couple of good days and he can get, you know, a little bit of work done, maybe cook a meal. But then I find that if I do that for more than one or two days, um, I then spend three or four days in bed. I'm getting that boom-bust cycle quite severely. He is unable to work in anything like the capacity he used to and unable to drive, unable really to do anything that we would consider to be normal life. Mm. And, Bianca, how long ago did James actually contract COVID-19? Back in December, early December. So we're now in July. So he's, he's coming up to, I think that's eight months. And I think... What we can't underestimate is the the mental health cost of this as well, not just in terms of the symptoms, and there's a lot of evidence that people experience um, increased anxiety and depression, which may itself be a feature of the disease, but also, I mean, you can imagine if you're normally an active person, you, you, you work hard, you participate in society, you like to socialise, to be basically rendered to, like he described it, a living, breathing shell, I think would be profoundly impactful on your mental health. So there's there's that kind of toll as well, which I think we can't minimise or underestimate. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Bianca, could you tell me a bit about what we actually know about why it is that, that the COVID-19 virus can cause these ongoing symptoms inside our body, even once the 
the acute phase of the illness, the actual infection is, is long gone. Well, SARS-CoV-2 isn't unique among viruses or even among um, pathogens in being associated with these kind of post-viral syndromes. Um, it has been associated with other infections. So, for example, the classic one is glandular fever is, has um, a, quite a strong association with chronic fatigue. Um, I think what's sort of un- perhaps a little bit unusual, well, it's not even unusual, it's more that I, I think we're just studying it so much that we're finding this stuff out, um, is the certainly the frequency of the persistence of symptoms. Um, I don't think that is something that's necessarily seen with other viruses. But again, you know, all of these sort of statements you have to be qualified by this this notion that it's so difficult to study because we don't have clear definitions. Um, so we're, you know, always kind of keep that in the back of your mind, I guess. But what SARS-CoV-2 does seem to do in the body is to trigger a lot of Um, inflammation. And inflammation has become a very modern uh, medical bugbear. You know, there's there's now accumulating evidence that inflammation is behind a whole host of, or at least contributing to a whole host of chronic diseases, you know, from diabetes to heart disease. And what seems to be emerging from research into COVID is that inflammation is really um, at the root of so many of the problems, not just with acute infection, but also with these chronic ongoing uh, long-term, um, long COVID, essentially. And mm. um, what is the latest information that we have about who is likely to develop long COVID? Are there certain groups of people that are, that are more at risk? The risk increases uh, as you get older. It certainly seems to be linked to severity of initial infection, so that seems to be associated. But then the other weird thing is that there aren't really any other clear red flags it just seems to strike down so many people. And, you know, we've all heard those anecdotal stories of somebody who's, you know, a marathon runner or a, you know, a gym trainer or, you know, people from all walks of life, really fit and healthy, are being struck down with this. And I think that's what's so scary about it is you just don't know if it's going to be something that that really flattens you. Mm. And can you tell me a little bit more about the recovery process? How is it that people get better? And, and I mean, does everyone get better? Um, again, it's, I think we're still feeling our way through this. And when I say we, I guess the, the medical kind of research community is still feeling its way. There's no drugs to treat this. There's no obvious solutions. And I mean, one of the the key steps with actually diagnosing this is to rule out the possibility that there's something else going on, because there may be, there may be undiagnosed conditions, whether those be, you know, heart disease or diabetes, you know, so it's ruling those out and certainly treating those if they're discovered. But then beyond that, it's it's actually really difficult, you know. So, for example, James, who I interviewed, his, I guess, management or treatment regimen is really just about just trying to work towards getting him back to being able to work more, being able to exercise more. So it's it's very gradual He's doing things like um, cold baths and stretching exercises and breathing exercises. And, you know, I, I think what's so challenging with this uh, condition is that to all intents and purposes, things like lungs, brain, or, you know, the things that seemingly are affected by long COVID um, appear to be structurally normal. There's no immediately obvious characteristics that are present in all people with long COVID. So we don't have a lot to go on in terms of identifying a a very obvious treatment target. And obviously a lot needs to be learned from treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome or 
perhaps the lack of treatment of chronic fatigue, and I think this is something that's really come out of this, is, you know, we, we've, we've had experience with this. We know something like this. Um, we just have done not very well at treating chronic fatigue all of this time. So the hope is that we can certainly learn lessons of what to do and what not to do from chronic fatigue and apply those to long COVID. But it's still very much at the kind of early stage of even understanding what's going on at a kind of biological level, let alone actually having any kind of targeted treatments that are shown to very clearly and swiftly work. So it's, it is a slow road. Mm. Bianca, thank you so much for talking to me about all of this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, the Federal Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Pat Conroy, has told reporters that the Australian government is open to collaborating with China on infrastructure in the Pacific. Conroy's comments follow on from a shift in language from China's Foreign Minister, Wang Yi, who's pushed for more positive engagement with Australia after Beijing failed to land a Pacific-wide security and economic deal in May. And in Sri Lanka, after months of public demonstrations, President Godabaya Rajapaska has fled the country hours before he promised to resign. With the country facing its worst economic crisis since 1948, protests over severe food, fuel and medicine shortages culminated in demonstrators taking over the presidential palace earlier this week, demanding the president resign. Rajapaska is accused of war crimes and other human rights abuses, but enjoyed immunity from arrest while in office. Sri Lanka's parliament is due to hold a vote on choosing a new president next week. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.